Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to the architects behind Bridgeport's Eleanor Boathouse about building on the river, chatted with members of the transit union about a possible strike, and discussed French literature with a noted translator. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 7, 2017. Hitting Left spoke to Clem Balanoff and Ken Franklin of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 308. They discussed possible strike actions over a quote-unquote second-chance program that the union says really turns workers into second-class citizens. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. We're back with that, uh, uh, with Clem Balanoff. Uh, and Clem, uh, some of your friends from uh, ATU have just walked in the door. You want to have them introduce themselves or you introduce them? Right. Well, um, we have um, Ken Franklin with us here. He's the president of Local 308, which represents the 3,000 train operators and mechanics um, at the CTA. That's and correct. And with them, he has a couple of other, well, a couple of, well, a board member. I think he's a board member only. That's right. Come on up Mr. here. Mr. Passmore. Yeah. El Mondo Passmore, executive board member for the CSAs and CSRs. And? and you want to Deborah Lane, Deborah. assistant board member and organizer for ATU Local 308. When you were talking earlier about the um, the rallies and events that have happened in place, Deborah's one of the real shakers and movers that made that happen in the local. Yes, she is. Yes, and we welcome is. you to the Klonsky Brothers uh, Hitting Left radio show. Thanks for coming today. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Fred. And Mike. my name was Mike. Mike. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for giving us a platform. Thank you for allowing us some uh, valuable airtime to speak on our issues at the Chicago Transit Authority. And, and what are those issues, uh, Ken? We've been uh, in contract negotiations for 18 months with very, very little movement. The best uh, offer that they put on the table was a 1%, 1% bonus the first two years and a 1% raise in print the third and fourth year of a four-year contract. But uh, their uh, health care proposals take more money out of our pocket. And there's a second chance program that they'd like to infuse into our contract, which we have adamantly said no to. So well, now, are we against a second chance? This is for, uh, for nonviolent offenders? Correct. No, we, no, we are not. Okay. We are not against uh, a second chance program, a second chance opportunity. But we are no longer going to support an inadequate uh, program that really is nothing but indentured slavery. It's really working cheap uh, in keeping people administratively in place so that the company can save money and not afford them a true second chance. This will, not, will no longer be allowed, and we're, we have proposals to improve the program and to give them a real path into full-time employment. What, what do they have these second-chance folks doing? And, uh, you know, that, that uh, is kind of uh, competing with, uh, with uh, organized labor and with, with uh, the bus drivers that, that are working now. The second-chance uh, program allows these individuals to clean the buses and to clean the trains. And it's, it's geared strictly toward uh, them getting employment, full-time employment, of cleaning the buses and trains. It does not allow them a path into other classifications such as an operator of a bus, operator of a train, or any other positions at CTA. It pays them 1050, it's supposed to be for 12 months. CTA has administratively 
moved them backwards and forwards between the bus and the rail where some have been on the property for three years and a small percentage, maybe 5% or less, actually wind up in full-time employment. And, and uh, who, who, can, uh, who can survive on ten fifty an hour now, especially uh, coming out of a prison? Or, uh, That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Well, one quick thing about the ten fifty an hour also. The mayor, Mayor Emanuel, in 2014, of September of 2014, signed an executive order saying contractors and subcontractors with the city of Chicago have to pay their employees $13 an hour. $13.50 or $13 an hour. Maybe $13 or $13.50 an hour. A couple of weeks later, he said he wanted the sister agencies, of which the CTA is one, to do the same thing, paying 13 and a half bucks an hour. They're getting paid $10.50 an hour. Now they're going to get a raise tomorrow only because the city minimum wage is going up to $11 an hour tomorrow, but not because of anything the mayor's done. But it still places them in uh, competition oh. with, with uh, uh, regular work with, with you folks, right? That's correct. And they also, even at that ten fifty an hour, they're taxed 3% into a retiree health care trust <laughs> fund that they have no access to until the age of 65. So they're actually making about $10.31. Now, I don't know, but it seems to me if you're trying to support a family with those kind of wages uh, and you're, you, you know, and you're trying to pull yourself up out of, a, a, you know, uh, marginal existence, you know, whether it be on the streets or whatever, this is a recipe to put you back. Yes. Yes. You back in the joint. Yeah. It's a horrible program. And m- most of them come to work these periods and never hit the three strikes and you're out where they get kicked off the property or they, they've worked as long as three years and had perfect records and still not able to go into a full-time position. And when he talks about three strikes, you get no holidays, no personal days, no sick days, no vacation days. And a strike can be being one minute late. You can't, if you were sick, you, you're, they want you to come to work. If you have to take care That's of a correct. sick child. So they have really none, none of the protections that a union contract provides. Absolutely. And nobody not. to speak for them. Absolutely. Correct. correct. Yes. Well, this sounds like uh, in one form or another, what's going on all over the country where, for example, prison labor is being used to compete with union labor. It's a drive down wages and, and uh, working conditions of, of, of workers. Absolutely. And that's why yesterday uh, my union exercised a preliminary strike vote, preliminary strike vote. It was it was very, very important. Uh, we had a ninety seven point five percent. Yes to this preliminary strike vote. When I start talking about uh, or members start talking about striking, the company immediately responded like it was taboo. Hey, don't say that. I say, no, I can teach my members what a strike is. We can learn the laws about striking. We can learn our international constitutions, all the X's and O's that have to be in place. There's nothing illegal about that. Yesterday we engaged in doing it. A third of the membership participated, and we got a 97.5 percent yes to the the preliminary strike vote. It was very inspiring. And so, what's the next steps? What happens? Guys, yeah, go ahead. uh, Just from my own experience of being uh, been on strike, when you get 97 percent. That's 100% for all intents yes. and purposes. I mean, yeah. a, 90, a 97% means that uh, the entire membership is uh, is united around a, yeah. a strike vote. Now, we didn't have every member participate in right. the vote. but Never we, do. We set a bar. <laughs> yeah. We set a bar for our local to move forward with. We know how many are 
immediately educated and want to do it, and we, we can recognize the work we have to do with those that did not participate in it. You know, I'm thinking back uh, to when the uh, they passed legislation uh, to try to uh, undermine the Chicago Teachers Union, and they passed a, a bill called Senate Bill 7, and they said uh, the teachers union will not, cannot strike unless they get 75% of their members to vote for a strike. Right. And they thought that that would, would take away, basically take away uh, the right to strike for teachers because they'd never get 75%. Right. And, of course, the CTU came back and got like 90, 98% or something like that uh, support and uh, were able to pull off a very successful strike. So right. uh, for, for you all, to, has, there been a, has there been a strike before of uh, ATU There's uh, workers? been a couple uh, in the 60s and in the one 60s. in the 70s. So uh, there hasn't been one in 40-something years. Correct, correct. And and it's it's treated like taboo, like uh, African-American can't talk about slavery or the Jewish community shouldn't talk about the Holocaust. I don't see anything wrong with a union educating its members on what a strike is. And well, that's all we did yesterday, and we took a measurement of the membership's posts. What other power do you have? I mean, that's right. If you if, if you don't have the power to withhold your labor, what, what's your other bargaining power? You know? The to file a grievance and wait <laughs> years and years <laughs> till it's resolved. Yeah, but yes, we so, uh, so we the, did that, and we're very proud of it. So transit workers have a power. They have the power to shut down the whole city, really. Give the city a heart attack. To give the city a heart attack. That's right. And, uh, we're, we're like the vessels in a heart. We feed the economic engine of the city with bodies that make biz- hundreds and thousands of business operate and afford hundreds of thousands of people in the city a way of life. Now, I've heard that, uh, that you've also been taking actions against privatization. How does privatization play into this? Well, the company uh, attempted to even sell the orange line to a uh, businessman years ago. To sell the orange line. To sell a line uh-huh. to uh, a businessman. So we're just uh, educating and trying to keep our uh, eyes on everything. I mean, you, you know the Koch brothers and all those entities. They're a 1,000 miles ahead of us. They got a ton of money. Very diabolical. A lot of things they do are camouflaged in legislation. So we just got to get get educated and, and pick up speed in order to fight those kind of attempts off. Now, how long have you been? Are you, are you a driver? Are you a bus driver? I have been at CTA and belonged to the Amalgamated Transit Union 13 years. I was a rail operator, then moved into supervision, and then was elected in the office two and a half years ago. And are, are you the president? Yes, I'm the president business agent. Are, are you a Chicagoan? Did you grow up here? Yes, yes, I grew up here. I've been in Chicago over 50 years. Where, where, where did you go to school? Where did you? Uh... Uh, Herman Felsenthal on 41st and Calumet, uh-huh. and then Paul Lawrence Dunbar on King Drive, uh-huh. and then a couple years of business school. Uh-huh. And uh, and you've been and you've been what what since then? You've been uh, driving. You've been. Uh, uh, operating SCTA operator for uh, a few years, then went into supervision for several years of the train system, and then again elected into the position of I mean, the there, president there, business agent. There's two, right? There's two, lo- one, one local that represents the rail 
the rail operators and then a different a different local for the bus for people who work the buses is that yeah. how it works yes ATU local 308 is the rail union ATU 241 is the bus union and we both belong to the amalgamated transit union and when you took a, the strike uh, this the strike vote yesterday uh, this is from both both locals took it or was this just yours this was just the rail union the bus union recently had a transition in representatives and their officers are getting caught up with everything that's been going on. And uh, who knows? We'll, we hope they uh, take the same And action. what's the timeline? So if the, this was not a strike authorization vote technically, right? Correct. So, Correct. So what's the timeline uh, now? You continue bargaining. Correct. Ho- hopefully the city will sit it down at the table with you and, uh, and deal with this stuff seriously. But how long does that go? Uh, they've invoked interest arbitration and uh, selecting an arbitrator – uh, from the panel and things of that nature, it could be forever. Well, you're not going to let it go forever. No, no, no. We'll, con- <laughs> we'll continue to educate and we'll continue to do rallies with our uh, friends, SEIU, AFSCME, uh, Chicago Teachers Union, Arise Chicago. We'll still continue to do things that make unions strong and bring uh, attention to the public. <laughs> Buildings on Air spoke to William Emick of Studio Gang and Owen Lloyd of the Park Advisory Council about the new Eleanor Boathouse. Emick and Lloyd spoke about community involvement, the compressed time for building, and the value of Chicago's riverfront. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of every month. Buildings on Air, I'm your host Kiefer Dunn, and uh, we're here uh, on a beautiful, beautiful summer day in Bridgeport, Chicago, Um, and we've got a good show lined up. Uh, We'll be talking about Bridgeport's relatively new uh, Eleanor Street Boathouse project by Studio Gang Architects. We've got the project architect, William Emick, here in the studio with us, um, as well as Owen Lloyd, neighborhood fixture, um, who sits on the uh, Park Advisory Council for uh, uh, the, uh, I don't know, very dryly named Park 571. (laughs) So we'll be chatting with those guys um, for the first uh, uh, 45 minutes, an hour or so of the show. Um, Then uh, in the second half of the show, we'll be chatting with the folks from Outpost Office um, about a very cool project where uh, Piranesi meets ASCII. Uh, If you don't know what either of those things are, uh, all will be explained in due time. Um, but they're they're very cool cool cats um, and excited to chat with them. And then of course it's our ever popular segment, the mailbag, where we answer your listener questions about architecture. Uh, there's still time to get those in, folks. Uh, just send them to at buildings on air on Twitter, B L D G S on air, um, and we will do our best to answer those. And that's with Anne Louis and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. So that being said, uh, William. Owen, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's great to be here. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, I, I realized that, um, you know, in the 18 hours of audio <laughs> that we've recorded for Buildings on Air, um, we haven't really spent an extended amount of time talking about, like, one building. Um, we talk about architecture in a very general sense or, you know, sort of home repairs more generally in the mailbag. Um, so this is a kind of cool thing to really get into the building and, and the process and how it gets used. Um, and yeah, and it's very, very lo- uh, a very local project, which is great, you know, for, for our uh, community radio station here. Um, so yeah, I, and just to kind of kick off the conversation, I think uh, 
to my mind, um, one of the most interesting things about Chicago is like how central the parks are to our sort of civic identity, like going all the way back to, you know, the Burnham City Plan. Um, and it's like I think an interesting effect of that is, that, you know, regardless of what you think about the mayors, um, you know, Park park district land and programming the parks and, and improving the parks is always a priority. It's just like air. It's like what you do. So, you know, for, for any critique I might have of Rahm Emanuel or his predecessors, and, and there are lots, uh, I think uh, credit where credit's due, uh, the city's shown like a, a, an eagerness to um, work with community groups and, and put lots of time into improving parks kind of all over the city. And, and so... Um, you know, there's more that can be done always, but I think the Eleanor Street Boathouse is a really good example of um, what's possible. And I think a big part of that is down to having like uh, a nice, thoughtful building that can kind of give the park um, like an inflection, I, I guess is maybe a good word. Um, so, uh, William, you're the, you were the project architect. Is that, is that right? Uh, yep. Great. Yep, yep. Along with a couple of other people that joined the team as well. So I, I'm not going to take full credit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's obviously Jeannie as well, who is the, the yeah. brain behind it all. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, can you just maybe for our listeners who are outside of the neighborhood or not in Chicago, um, just kind of explain the project. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us tell us what the boathouse is, mm -hmm. broad strokes, um, what's the deal? Well, broad, <laughs> <what's the deal? laughs> broad strokes, it's really, it's, it, it, it is what it is. It's a boathouse. Um, it, uh, it's really a community boathouse that uh, is, is uh, sort of a, um, a community center, a boathouse, sort of a recreational sort of destination. Um, it's uh, split up into two sort of separate buildings, one being a filled house. That's, uh, that's really where more of the uh, indoor training happens, uh, where you can have community events. Um, kids can come there and gather there after school and do after school events. Um, and then you have a sort of larger building that's housing all of the boats for the teams. Um, and it's really just to, uh, it's a building to sort of showcase yeah. how you can get out on the river. Right. And these are r rowing teams from, uh, St. Ignatius, uh, UFC, uh, there's CTC and then there's uh, row, which is uh, recovery on water. Cool. Yeah. And, and, um, it also sits at a, uh, a kind of very interesting moment in, uh, Chicago's waterways. <laughs> um, it's where bubbly Creek, uh, yeah. meets the river, um, bubbly Creek for, for, well, oh, and you, you know something about bubbly Creek. <laughs> Maybe you can explain it for, uh, 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 those who might not be in the know. Technically, Bubbly Creek was filled in in the early 1900s, so it's the South Branch, which is now started to be called Bubbly Creek, and it still bubbles from all the organic material which is rotting at the bottom of it. You can go to the bridge on 35th, look down. If the water's calm, you can see it bubbling kind of like a cola, slowly going flat, except for it's taken over 100 years to go flat. <laughs> right. uh, it's also, so it's where the South Branch reaches the main branch, where the West Branch used to reach before that was filled in. Uh, the I&M Canal was dug there in the early 1800s which this portion has been filled in and now the Sanitarian Ship Canal uh, goes all the way down to the Illinois River. So it's this great confluence uh, which gave birth to the city of Chicago because it's the portage. It's how people would get from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi via the Illinois River yeah. uh, across Mud Lake. And it was back in the 1500s where French explorers were like, the canal right here can make a great civilization. And that's what happened. Yeah. Yes, and of course, it's the, the namesake of our uh, bridge port, right? Yes, Portage, yes. Port, the portage around the bridge. Yeah. Also important to note that they reverse the river so that we can send. <laughs> yes, so yeah, we so can send our awful down to St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and, and I and I guess that's a question because uh, I know um, Studio Gang's done a kind of a lot of work thinking about Chicago's waterways, mm-hmm. and I know uh, there's the kind of book uh, Reverse Effect where the proposal was to you know re-reverse the river, right? Um, so I, I'm wondering if if uh, well, I don't know if you, if you worked on that personally or not, but I'm uh, I I worked on little parts yeah that. i didn't uh, i didn't have a hand in most of the the work there it was genie with uh, nrdc on that, that yeah uh, what is nrdc uh national Res- resource defense council gotcha <laughs> okay cool i had no idea <laughs> yeah. yeah but uh, like i'm i'm curious what impact that sort of had on on the project if if it even if it was like you know helpful for you, you guys to kind of claim an expertise on the rivers um well it had it had a lot of impact on on what we were thinking you know it's it's sort of the first step or one of the first moves that uh, that we we highlight in in reverse effect which is really to get people access uh, to the to the river so um, that's sort of the first step in it all is to get access and then to clean the waterway system and then you know this idea of building a barrier to um, to stop the invasive carp mm. coming in and then also to eventually re-reverse the river back and uh, um, sort of recreate or rebuild the uh, the original watershed yeah yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. It makes sense, you know. I was so I was at the project well, a few days ago, and and there was a lot of people, um, you know, running around. Lots mm-hmm. of kids, kids doing summer programs. This is great, and uh, so yeah, and you know, you sit there and you kind of look across the river, and you get to see the boats passing and everything else, and you're like, wow, like I I can't believe this was in my backyard the whole time. And yeah. so it, I think it does have that that sort of a bigger picture effect of making people. Um, think about natural resources. Yeah, and CTC was actually rowing out of there for quite some time. And then, you know, it was great that the, the mayor and the US EPA decided to really have a plan of action to get people on the river. And, you know, just this is something that came about it. It's one of four, by the way, that sort of connects the North Branch to the South Branch to really get people out there. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so, um, Owen, you're on the Park Advisory Council for Correct, Park 571. Yes. Um, and I, I'm curious, like, what your experience has been, like, having – was the park there, like, before the boathouse? Like, I was, was always very curious about it because I go across the street as Canal Origins Park and across Ashland from there is Canal Riverwalk Park. Uh-huh. I like both those parks a lot. On my days off when I'm running errands, I'll stop and I'll just sort of hang out and I'd see this just – plot of grass with a fence around it with some boats and I didn't know what was going on and out of I found out on the map, because I'll go and look at maps a fair amount of the area, that it was Park 571, but it was fenced off for some reason. But there were rowing teams there, and I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea they were going to be building the boathouse at that point. Mm. And then uh, a couple years ago, before they started construction, the fences came down. And so we were able to sit on this patch of grass, and people started fishing. And it was great. It was because you can get down to the riverfront, and the river's not accessible in most of Chicago. You can't easily get to the edge of it. And then... um, I think it was shortly after that, a few months after that, the fences went back up and construction had begun. And it's like, oh, something going on here. And the now president of the Park Advisory Council visited the bike shop saying, hey, I want to start a Park Advisory Council. Can I put a flyer out? 
And me being like a river geek, like history-wise and everything, I'm like, whoa, Boathouse Park Advisory Council, count me in. I like those parks. <laughs> and so we started meetings at the East Bank building before the boathouse was complete just to organize the Park Advisory Council, get the word out to the, the neighborhood and see if anybody yeah. wanted to take part. The rowing teams attended. We have a couple of uh, Coast Guard volunteers, Coast Guard Auxiliary volunteers that have been coming since the very beginning. And we just formed the council from there. And the, the first time we were able to have a meeting at the finished boathouse was great. I think it was last November or December, mm. I think. And it's a great space. Yeah. It really is. Like the meeting spaces. Uh, in the in the field house portion of it, and then the 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 hall where they do like yoga and you know various classes and stuff there right. is is really cool. The way that you can see the view over the river, and this time I know on the solstice the sunset lined up with the big picture window, yeah, which I was told was really cool to watch. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's one of one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you both in the studios because like you know, you're both deeply involved in this boathouse, right? <laughs> it's like, and you guys have never met, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of a, 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 like one of the incredible weird ways that architecture works, and you know, and you've been involved from the from the community side, uh, you know, from from the early days, and and so. I'm I'm kind of curious to hear the other side also, right? Like, especially being an architect myself, you know, like how, how did this project start? You know, like how how did how did you guys talk with the community? Like, I was like, what what was it that sort of um, I don't know? What were the seeds of the project? Like, get get into the nitty gritty details. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the project started in 2011, actually. You know, and and here it is now. 2016 was when we officially occupied the building. Um, and it started with two boathouses uh, in, in 2011, just after the mayor and the US EPA uh, uh, announced their plans to get people access uh, hmm. to the river. Um, so we were one of four, or we were, we, we were one of two architects that uh, would then design uh, four boathouses. So Johnson Lee designed the other two at North Park and Ping Tom. Mm -hmm. And we uh, designed the uh, WMS boathouse at Clark Park and then now Eleanor. We actually designed them simultaneously at the same time. Um, and for whatever reason, the Clark Park boathouse got built first and then this one sort of got put on the shelf for just a little bit to, to get some more funding and then to eventually go forward. So there were a couple modifications that had to be made and you know, right. like any any city project, you have to work with budgets, and um, you know you have to work with the, uh, the the park district to make sure that it's sort of meeting their standards. You know, there's a right. lot of prescribed requirements. You know, that the CPD has for maintenance and durability and whatnot. Yeah. Um, in terms of how we we went about the process, um, we worked a lot with uh, with the rowing clubs, uh, in particular CTC and Row were the two that we really had a lot of back and forth with. Mm. To ensure that you know it was meeting their standards and it was you know it was able to house what they had and it was also about um, trying to build in some sort of future expansion into the project as well, so right. that the community can grow with it, you know, and the building can sort of accommodate that. Um, so you'll see in it that there's a lot of extra space, you know, in some areas, so that the the rowing clubs can grow or other people can start to form their own organizations if they want to to then possibly move into the building. <laughs> This week on the Trump Diaries. Trump attacks a TV host in vulgar terms. Scott Pruitt's EPA gets dealt a setback in court. Sarah Huckabee Sanders claims Chicago gun violence is down to morality. Trump's White House is accused of blackmail. The voter fraud panel gets slapped back. 
and his war on the horizon in Korea. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 161, June 29th. Bipartisan backlash ensued today after Trump used vulgar and crude terms to describe TV host Micah Brzezinski. Trump called her, quote, low IQ crazy Micah and claimed during a supposed meeting that she was, quote, bleeding badly from a facelift. This was just the latest in an escalating series of attacks in the media from Trump and his White House. The White House, when asked, did not back down with a spokeswoman saying, quote, the only person I see a war on is this president and everybody that works for him. I don't think you can expect someone to be personally attacked day after day, minute by minute, and sit back. The American people elected a fighter. Huckabee Sanders also claimed falsely that Trump has never promoted or encouraged violence. Kellyanne Conway followed it by claiming that the media's coverage of Trump is, quote, neither productive nor patriotic. And the Pentagon today said it has seen chemical weapons activity at the same Syrian airbase used for a sarin gas attack on rebel-held territory this past spring. The White House said Syria would, quote, pay a heavy price if it carried out another one. Syrian and Russian officials rejected the accusation, calling the White House statement a provocation. And Trump took a major step toward repealing a bitterly contested Obama-era regulation designed to limit water pollution in 60% from the nation's bodies of water. That rule, known as Waters of the United States, had extended existing federal protections of large bodies of water, such as the Chesapeake Bay, to smaller bodies that flow into them, such as rivers, small waterways, and wetlands. Issued under the authority of the 1972 Clean Water Act, the rule had been hailed by environmentalists and bitterly opposed by real estate brokers, farmers, and business. And Rex Tillerson reportedly ripped a White House aide for sinking his nominees and leaking to the press this, according to a report on Politico. Tillerson allegedly tore into Johnny DiStefano, the head of the Presidential Personnel Office, in front of Rince Prebis, Jared Kushner, and others, saying he did not want DiStefano's office to, quote, have any role in staffing, and said that anybody should know better than him about who should work in his department. Kushner called the outpost unprofessional. Day 162, June 30th. Trump's so-called Election Integrity Commission requested full voter roll data, including the voting history of every voter, from the states. At least 24 states are refusing to turn over voter data to Trump's election panel. States have reacted coldly to the letter. Connecticut pointed out the chair of the commission, Chris Kobach, has, quote, a lengthy record of illegally disenfranchising eligible voters in Kansas. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe said, quote, at best this commission was set up as a pretext to validate Trump's alternative election facts and is at worst a tool to commit large-scale voter suppression. Voter fraud is almost non-existent in the USA, but has been used to suppress voter turnout by Republicans. And in an explosive allegation, the hosts of Morning Joe on MSNBC essentially accused White House staff of blackmail. Mecca Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough, the target of a Trump tweet storm yesterday, claimed top White House aides had contacted them to say they could prevent the National Enquirer from publishing a negative article about them if they called the president, apologized for criticizing him on their show, and asked for his forgiveness. Scarborough also said he had the records to prove it. And 20 federal ATF agents have been assigned to a new Chicago task force aimed at cutting the flow of illegal guns into the city. Trump claimed credit for the move in a tweet saying, quote, Crime and killings in Chicago have reached such epidemic proportions I am sending in federal help. At an afternoon press conference, spokeswoman Huckabee Sanders bizarrely claimed Chicago's gun crime was, quote, driven more by morality than by anything else. And Trump now wants to immediately repeal Obamacare if the Senate health care bill fails. Trump tweeted, quote, if Republican senators are unable to pass what they're working on now, they should immediately repeal, then replace at a later date. Trump's tweet came minutes after Senator Ben Sass said on Fox News, quote, we need repeal, we need replace, trying them to do together hasn't seemed to work. Repealing Obamacare now would cause 32 million Americans to lose health coverage in the first year. 
A GOP aide said the chances of repealing first and then replacing are zero. Another added is, quote, not going to happen. And Trump has appointed an anti-transgender activist to the Office of Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment. Bethany Kozma campaigned to oppose the Obama's administration's guidance to public school that transgender students have the right to use bathrooms matching their gender identity, repeating an unsubstantiated assertion that the policy leads to sexual assault. Also, the White House Council for Women and Girls has been silently disbanded. And a Republican opposition researcher sought Clinton's emails while claiming to represent Michael Flynn. According to a major report in the Wall Street Journal, Peter W. Smith considered Flynn an ally in his effort to contact hackers, hoping to find the 33,000 personal emails deleted by Clinton. He said, quote, I'm talking to Michael Flynn about this. If you find anything, can you let me know? Said a computer security expert who searched hacker forums on Smith's behalf. Smith, who died on May 14th, supported Flynn's efforts to establish relations with Russian officials. Day 163, July 1st. Yahoo is reporting that a group of 25 House Democrats, including former DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz, have been quietly working since April on a bill to remove Trump from office. Jamie Raskin of Maryland is the main sponsor of the bill, which takes a radical and unprecedented approach to removing Trump using the 25th Amendment. The bill goes after a specific part of the amendment by proposing the creation of, quote, an oversight commission on presidential capacity. And Trump continues attacks in the media using a celebration of American veterans and freedom at an evening rally to thunder he would not allow the, quote, fake media to stop his agenda. Speaking to raucous supporters at a faith rally at the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts in Washington, Trump brought the crowd to its feet by condemning news organizations. Trump told the crowd, quote, the fake media is trying to silence us, but we will not let them because the people know the truth. The fake media tried to stop us from going to the White House, but I'm president and they're not. And Trump has used a new tactic to crack down on illegal immigration, this time arresting undocumented parents suspecting of having paid to have their children ushered into the country by smugglers. Until recently, those adults have not been priorities for arrest, even if they are in the country illegally. Day 164, July 2nd. Axios is reporting that Steve Bannon wants to raise taxes on the wealthiest Americans to pay for steep, middle, and working class tax shuts. Some officials who have heard Bannon's idea think it's crazy. He thinks it's a potent populist idea. Bannon has told people he wants the top income tax bracket, quote, to have a four in front of it. The top bracket is currently 39.6%. Also, advisor Gary Cohn has apparently told associates if tax reform doesn't get done this year, it is probably never going to happen. Cohn wants to slash the corporate tax rate from 15% from the current 35%. And Trump posted a short video to his Twitter account in which he has portrayed wrestling and punching a figure on whose head has been replaced by the logo for CNN. The video is an edited clip from a years-old appearance by Trump in WrestleMania. The clip ends with an on-screen restyling of the CNN logo as, quote, FNN Fraud News Network. The tweet drew disbelief across the spectrum. Day 165, June 3rd. German Chancellor Angela Merkel's political party, the Christian Democratic Union, no longer refers to the United States as Germany's friend in its election materials. That's a change from four years ago, per Reuters. And the State Department is now quietly allowing dozens of young women and minority students to become full-fledged diplomats after previously threatening to rescind job offers. Earlier this month, the State Department had notified 60 Wrangell and Pickering Fellowship recipients that not only would they not be joining the Foreign Service, but they had to choose whether to accept what amounted to a two-year clerkship or pay back $85,000 that the government had invested in each of their educations. And an appeals court struck down the EPA's two-year suspension of a new emission standards on oil and gas wells, a setback for the Trump administration's broad legal strategy to roll back Obama-era rules. 
The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia concluded the EPA had the right to reconsider a 2016 rule limiting methane and smog-forming pollutants emitted by oil and gas wells, but they could not delay the effective date for two years while it sought to rewrite the regulation. Day 166, the 4th of July. Trump told the Chinese leadership that the United States is prepared to act on its own against North Korea. The warning came in a day when North Korea successfully launched an ICBM that experts say is capable of hitting Alaska. Trump's warning, apparently delivered in a cordial but blunt phone call to President Xi Jinping, was accompanied by a flurry of confrontational acts by Trump against China. Trump also tweeted, quote, perhaps China will put a heavy move on North Korea and end this nonsense once and for all. Later that day in Moscow, where Xi was on a state visit, Vladimir Putin said both nations had agreed on a joint proposal to settle the Korea crisis by freezing the North's nuclear and missile programs and the joint military drills by the USA and South Korea. Russia also shares a partial border with North Korea. And the House Committee on Appropriations drafted a provision to stop the IRS from enforcing the controversial insurance mandate that is a vital part of Obamacare. The bill reads, quote, none of the funds made available by this act may be used by the IRS to implement or enforce Section 5000A of the Internal Revenue Code. That bill would prohibit the IRS from enforcing a requirement that employers and insurance companies inform the government the name and social security number of anyone to whom they provide health insurance coverage. Day 167, July 5th. 44 states are now refusing to comply with some or all of the provisions made in a request by Trump's so-called Election Integrity Commission, including Commission Head Chris Kobach's own state of Kansas. The commission set up to investigate Trump's fraudulent claim that millions of people voted illegally, denying him a win in the popular vote, has been roundly criticized as an invitation to voter suppression. Trump added to the furor when he treated, quote, numerous states are refusing to give information to the very distinguished voter fraud panel. What are they trying to hide? In related news, a civil rights group is claiming Kobach is using the panel to raise funds for a run for Kansas's governorship in violation of the Hatch Act. The Lawyers Committee filed a complaint Monday with the Office of Government Ethics alleging Kobach using his TV appearances to raise funds via social media. And numerous Republican senators and congressmen sat out the traditional 4th of July parades, fearing meeting their constituents. Ted Cruz got an earful from protesters in McAllen, Texas. Nevada Senator Dean Heller, who came out against the Republican health care bill, was heckled at a parade. In all, only two Republican senators, Kansas's Jerry Moran and Louisiana's Bill Cassidy, held traditional town hall meetings with constituents. Even moderate Susan Collins, who was against the health care repeal bill, said she was shocked how vocal her constituents were on the issue. And opinion polls continue to batter Trump. 65% of respondents in the political morning consult poll say Trump crossed a line with his Twitter attack on a TV host. 538's Metapoll has Trump at 39%. Only 28% of Republicans say Trump's tweeting is appropriate. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 spoke to Charlotte Mandel, who translated French author Matthias Einard's new work, Compass. Mandel spoke about Orientalism, why she doesn't write stories herself, and the controversial novel, The Kindly Ones. I-94 airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Today, we are joined by the translator Charlotte Mandel, who has just translated the Prix Goncourt winner, Matthias Einard's Compass. Charlotte, we really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Charlotte, where are you, where are you joining us from again? Uh, I live in the Hudson Valley, um, two hours north of New York City. Oh, did you get hit by the flooding yesterday? A little bit, not too much. Yeah, there was quite a bit of rain. (laughs) We're glad you're safe and sound and you're not underwater as the city of Utica is. Right. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your experience on this book. What, What attracted you to translating this work? Um, this is the third novel by Mathias Einar that I've translated. Um, the first novel was actually a 500-page sentence, 
So I'm kind of attracted to long books with long sentences and stream of consciousness narrative that kind of, um, it's something that I like doing because I don't generally read ahead when I translate. So um, I like sort of inhabiting the voice as I translate it. I, I like um, sort of going with it and not really um, knowing what comes next. So um, that's very true for Compass. <laughs> okay. Well, we actually have a reading and a selection from, from Compass. Why don't we play that to give our listeners a little quick taste of what the book is about? And then we're going to be right back with Charlotte. Uh, you're listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Exploration. 12.55 a.m. I'd rather be in my bed, eyes in the dark, lying on my back, head resting on a soft pillow, than in the desert, even in the company of Felicia and David. Even in the company of Sarah, the desert is an extraordinarily uncomfortable place. I'm not even talking about the sand desert where you swallow silica all day long, all night long. It gets into all your orifices, your ears, your nostrils, and even your navel. I'm talking about the Syrian-style desert of stones, pebbles, boulders, rocky mountains, heaps, cairns, hills with here and there oases where it's a mystery how the red earth shows through. And then the Badia is covered with fields, winter wheat, or date palms. In Syria, it should be said that desert is a misnomer. There were people even in the most remote regions, nomads or soldiers, and it was enough for a woman to stop to pee behind a mound by the side of the road for a Bedouin to immediately pop up and nonchalantly observe the milky hindquarters of the stunned Westerner, Sarah in this case, whom we saw running toward the car disheveled, holding up her pants with one hand as if she'd just seen a ghoul. Bilger and I thought at first that jackal or snake or even a scorpion had lashed out at her buttocks, but having overcome her fright, she explained to us, laughing uproariously, that a red and white kefia had appeared behind a rock, and that beneath that kefia there was a tanned nomad, standing arms crossed, face impassive, observing in silence what for him too must have been a strange apparition, a foreign woman squatting in his desert. This region has been inhabited since the third millennium BC. You have just seen the proof. And that was a reading from Compass. So that was a passage involving Sarah, the, the love interest of the narrator. That's who was being scared by the, the Bedouin while she was peeing behind a, a rock, I think. Um, Charlotte, can you tell us how you found Zone or how Zone found you or you found Matias or the other way yeah, around? Yeah, I, I, um, I read an excerpt from Zone in a digest that was published by the French Publishers Agency. And I just fell in love with that. And I thought that I had to translate that. So um, I translated that excerpt. This was back when they were trying to find publishers for books, and they would have translators choose excerpts to translate. Um, and then I heard that Chad Post at Open Letter was interested in publishing Zone. So I wrote to him and asked him if I could translate it for them, and, uh, and he said yes. And so um, Open Letter published the first two books, Zone and Street of Thieves. Uh, I, did, I translated both of those for Open Letter. Um, I just knew that when I saw that excerpt that it was the best thing I'd read in French in a long time. Hmm. So I was really happy to be able to do that. I, I'd read a little bit about you and the fact that you had uh, translated The Kindly Ones, which was a controversial novel that I, I actually read also, um, which um, if if you want to talk a little bit about how you ended up with that one and, and had you received any feedback or flack for the controversial subject matter uh, from that novel. And, and just to let people know, just at a very quick description, 
um, you know, the, it took place um, during World War II, and it, it involved the protagonist was a gay Nazi. And did you have any um, any any flack or uh, feedback about that novel and and um, the impact that it had? Um. I got a lot of feedback. <laughs> um, actually, I think there were some really excellent reviews of it, especially by Daniel Mendelssohn in the New York Review of Books, um, where he understood the connection to the Oresteia. It's all about, um, it, it, it deals with Orestes and um, fate and sort of what we as people have, like what our choices, how, how they matter and how we create our fate or, or not. And um, the way that I got to do that was uh, Jonathan Littell had, um, was working with uh, HarperCollins, and so they were looking for a translator, um, and so he, he didn't want to know, um, he, sent, he just asked for anonymous samples of translations, so he didn't actually know me as the translator when I sent in the sample, he just read the, trans the sample of the translation of the first chapter, I think. Um, and I think there were maybe five or six different samples, and he he chose mine. And it was interesting because we have a lot in common. He's um, also very interested in Blanchot, who I've translated a lot, and um, and Genet. He was interested in a. He actually had translated part of a Genet book that I translated called Fragments of the Artwork for Stanford University Press. Um, and we're about the same age, and it was we we ended up working together really well, and I, I liked him a lot. Um, He's half French and half American, and so working with a completely bilingual person on a translation was actually very helpful for me. Um, I actually really enjoyed translating that. It was one of the most difficult books that I've ever translated, obviously. Um, and since I've come to inhabit the voices of my narrators, I started dreaming in the voice of Awa, who is this Nazi. And it was um, a very powerful <laughs> experience for me. I can imagine. Um, yeah. <laughs> Now you would you would say the kindly ones was more difficult than zone or compass? More difficult psychologically. Okay. Um, yeah, not more difficult in terms of the language. Um, so technically, not as difficult, but mentally, it was more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Charlotte, there are a lot of um, probably hundreds of literary, musical, philosophical references in in compass. Did you? While, I know you don't read ahead. While you were translating, did you find yourself veering off into other paths, musically, literarily? I would, well, I would try to, whenever a musical piece came up, I would try to play that while I was translating it. So that would help a lot, actually. Um, I mean, I grew up listening to classical music, and so a lot of the references were um, familiar for me. Not, not a lot of the more obscure ones. Um, but, I mean, that, that world is one that I feel at home in. So it wasn't something that I, I felt like I, I was out of my depth or anything. Had you um, read Edward Said's Orientalism? I know that's a book that kind of looms in the background throughout this novel. It is, yeah. Um, actually, I haven't read that. Um, but, I mean, the whole concept of Orientalism is, is at issue in the novel. Um, what what comprises Orientalism and what we think of as other. Um, and I think one of the main um, subjects of the novel is how there really is no, I mean, to the wise, nothing is foreign. 
um, the West and the East are always intermingling. There is there is no like distinct East and West. Um, there's always influence of East on West and West on East. Um, and so I think that's one of the main subjects of the novel, actually. And we should mention for readers that are not familiar, what we're talking about is uh, a landmark work by a, an author named Edward Said called Orientalism. He uh, was... Uh, a, th- a great thinker who posited that uh, constructions of the Arab world specifically, but of, of the East in general, what we call the Orient, was a political act by the West to define it, to shape it, and to contain it. Um, and as Charlotte correctly points out, in the novel, the narrator, Franz, who is an Austrian musicologist, uh, demonstrates uh, a real affinity for the Arab world and seems to think that the concept of Orientalism itself uh, is false, that, that as Charlie's just mentioned, East and West intermingle, and uh, there's a very humanist tone to the book, I would argue, uh, in saying that um, people, d- despite their backgrounds or cultures, are all just people and are very interesting. My, my understanding is the author also has uh, a real affinity for the Arab world and, and a great deal of experience in it. Yes, oh yes, um, he actually is a translator of Arabic and Persian into French. Um, he's translated some classic, classic Arabic books. I, I forget which ones, but um, he speak, He teaches Arabic at the University of Barcelona, and um, he also speaks Farsi. And um, he's lived for, I think, three years in Syria, uh, teaching French. So he's very closely um, linked with the Arabic world. I guess what I do is I, I just let the text speak for itself. I try not to insert myself into a book too much. So um, I stayed as, I've stayed as faithful as possible to the original French and just tried to convey what the text was saying. Um, I don't believe in the translator um, you know, inserting his or her own voice into something. I, I try to let the text speak for itself. So uh, Compass was actually really easy with, I mean, it was easy for me to do that because it's such a powerful, Ritter's voice, the Franz Ritter is the narrator, his voice is such a powerful voice and it's so um, convincing and persuasive that um, I could just let him speak for himself. And um, I think the excerpts, I mean, there are a lot of political issues at stake, but I think that they come through on their own um, without any notes or anything like that. Poet Jay Ivey stopped by News from the Service Entrance to perform some new work. This poem is a selection from his new album, My Daddy's Records. News from the Service Entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Hey, hey. There you go. What up, what up? What were you asking me? I said, what's on? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now. Shantown, what it do? What's happening? <laughs> Jay Ivey's <laughs> in the building, y'all. If you aren't familiar with Jay Ivey and his work, not even the, the uh, him being an author, but uh, his impact on uh, poetry here in town and nationally uh, can't be understated, a Def Jam poet, uh, author of two books, one of them, Jay Ivey, Dear Father, Breaking the Cycle of Pain, very important book. Um, right. And what I learned, oh, I get to hold it for no cameras at all. Just, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Here we go, everyone. Yeah. And what I, what I learned a couple of years ago that I didn't know, his dad was a major voice on the radio here in Chicago yeah. on WVON. But we'll talk about all that stuff with my man, Jay Ivey. What's up, brother? We got a minute for one? Yeah, yeah. I, I just, it's just on, it's on my spirit. We got a couple minutes. Are you about to spit? I mean, I just, the, you know. The, let me turn my mic off. Go yeah, right ahead, brother. So this is a, uh, um, so... On on my daddy's records, it's a joint 
it's a bonus track called Raise Your Vibrations. So Just don't curse. I won't. It's right. The whole album clean. Of so course. Yeah, see, get, the, I kept it clean yeah. so, you know, I can sell it wherever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll turn my mic off. Go ready. All right. I jumped in with a grin, bumped my chin, scraped my knee, earned my scars. Pray for me. You're such a blessing. I'm wrestling with thought, trying to pin something to the pad, the mat. The fat was trimmed but grew back. I went against the grain and my instinct said, I told you not to do that. I knew that this, that boom bat. Didn't you feel your stomach churn? Burn like reflux. I make mistakes, then lose trust. Stagnant is my magnet when my thoughts are tragic. But when I'm clear, I steer clear of the fear I hear. You hear that? Sounds like a dream come true. Refreshing like when dreams come to you and reveal themselves in a song or poem. Straighten you out like a hot comb a perm new lessons help us unlearn our ignorance each moment is significant but we take them for granted i'm trying to rebuild the damage bridge the gap tap into the source breathe through breeze through my course what board is this what's the mission what's the plan listen it's us against the damn but damn they winning they think they winning you ain't winning trying to hypnotize us with their lies wake up open your eyes stretch your soul connect with your role in the you will put here to play Looking at barrels and damn the spray We bulletproof, who let the bullets loose You can't strike us all down We hurting but we ain't all in the ground Each death fertilizes our spirit Our growth, our hope, our heart still pound Like the first drum played We birth civilizations like the first love made Oh, it feels so good Just like I knew it would I'm back to meeting my neighbors in the hood Back, back, looking to the stars Looking into the hearts, connecting, reflecting We all been detecting a change a shift a tilt in the axis like a close call it's no accident something's happening feel that something's happening i'm raveling i'm babbling purpose have you found yours ignore yours you getting the itch to explore more open more doors peek in we all been seeking peace to the east my brother to the east i'm from an ex-clan finishing these moves so i can move to the next plan i'm plotting yes i get it popping i pop in so i like can intertwine and dance between minds hands open wide i'm catching feelings can't you feel it oh you got that spirit i know you hear it yeah they fear it when we get here when we get up there when we climb those stairs when we breathe without stress yes we've come far but not far enough i look in the mirror and ask myself what you go doing the clutch i'm breaking the cuss pushing past the cuss pay attention to what they doing to us clarity is a must habits come calling in the eye of the storm i'm holding on to everything that's calming the fight is exhausting thank god i ain't lost it thank god i ain't lost it i stay praying to him time to get back in the gym back in the pen working it out because i know it's gonna all work out in the end why pretend like it ain't you think things go defeat you but they can't you stronger than that i'm stronger than that i stood on mine ain't no turning back all i got is my word these words these conversations let it be heard in your nerves digging your reserves and let's raise our vibration jay ivy in the building so that's what i'm talking about the Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.